just met someone and the conversation leads to the inevitable question. So, what do you do? A simple question calls for a simple answer. But what if your answer is never simple? What if your answer defies the societal norms? What does career happiness mean to you? This show dives into convention-breaking career choices, uncovering narratives of working professionals, and creating a space for those who wish to pursue their passions. This is So What Do You Do? Welcome back to So What Do You Do? Today in the studio, we have Danielle Buten. So Danielle, what do you do? So I am the founder and the CEO of the Afia Foundation. So Danielle, just tell us a little more about yourself. I am an occupational therapist, and for many years, I worked in the field of aging. In fact, I got my occupational therapy degree here at NYU, and then went on to work in aging for many years uh, before I started the launch of Afia. What are three adjectives you would use to describe yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I would say authentic, not perfectionistic, and compassionate. So I want to talk a little bit about your foundation, Afia. You started your career journey, like you mentioned, as an occupational therapist. Can you talk a little bit about when you realized maybe this wasn't the career that you wanted to pursue forever and how you shifted into starting the nonprofit? I really believe that the trajectory of a career is a series of stepping stones that we, one, will lead to the next and then the next. And so for me, I had worked clinically for many years in aging, and then I was recruited to lead a big division uh, at Oxford Health Plans. And then Oxford was acquired by United Healthcare, and I wanted something different, and I didn't know what. And I was downsized at United Healthcare, and then I was at an interesting juncture in my life. It was, do I continue in this field? Do I change? I have an ability to lead. I have an ability to inspire. Where do I want to bring that body of work? And it was the perfect time. Bizarrely, it was the perfect time for me to go to Africa because I didn't have a job. And I'd wanted to go to Africa for so many years, so I went. And there, in the middle of the Serengeti Plains, was the answer for me. I saw a physician, I didn't know she was a physician at the time, crying in a tent, talking about how there are no medical supplies to save anyone. And I was so struck by her story and her pain and felt so mobilized to do something about it that I came home and decided this was going to be the next body of work in my life. That's so inspiring. And to you, what does Afia mean? So Afia was named mm -hmm. uh, as such to honor the land that whispered the work. So Afia means health in the Kiswahili language. And I feel like that is a way of keeping the land uh, that inspired the work close, mm -hmm. and that's why it was named as such. So before, you did have an executive position at uh, Fortune 500 companies. What was the transition like going from that into this new line of work? So these stepping stones that influence everything that follows uh, is really true here. So I worked in a environment where everyone was very accountable. Uh, it was structured. 
expectations were very clear, and I was able to bring some of that to the launch of a non-for-profit. So I, I actually think that many of the skills I acquired during my years at Oxford and United in terms of building teams, speaking truthfully about areas that are not acceptable and don't work well, have served me so well with international work and needing those skills on a much bigger level, but I used them well in a Fortune 500 company and honed them. Mm-hmm. So cool. When you wanted to start Afia, did you have any sort of pushbacks from the community around you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That was the understatement of the century. Uh, So, yes, uh, I was when I started Afia, I was divorced and the mother of three. And my family was really worried about me. And many of my friends were as well. You know, what are you doing? You went from an executive position to you don't know if you're going to be able to do this. Who's going to finance this? How is this going to work? You know, I, I was asked many questions and I was discouraged regularly. And I have to say that I felt deeply inside of me that because of the way this work was delivered, it couldn't fail. Mm-hmm. It was in such um, an extraordinary sacred setting that it would be okay. And I just had to trust that voice. Wow. So I know for me personally, when I first heard your story and your work, I was just so inspired about taking on a new venture when, especially like you mentioned, there was pushback, there were hardships. So what type of advice would you have for people who want to start new ventures? Uh, What should they take into account? Number one, nothing is going to be perfect. So I think we really discourage ourselves when we have this impression that anything we try or we risk or we imagine is going to need to be perfectly woven from the start. I started off here not knowing anything about logistics and warehousing and trucking and international customs, but I believed I could learn. So I would say the the first piece of advice is we get in our way all the time. So the difference between launching something and not is the self-talk that we choose to allow ourselves to be governed by. That's the only difference between those who launch and those who don't. Um, I really believe that. So if people have an idea, they have an element of change that they have been imagining, it's about just starting. Mm. And once you start to walk on the stones, you're on it. It's influencing the next and the next that will follow it. So it is what voice do we choose to listen to? Are we going to listen to the negative narrative that just keeps us paralyzed and looking for the perfect thread? Or do we listen to the voice that says, just do it, you know, see what's going to happen. Try it. If you fail, you fail. It's nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I really, really, I I live and breathe those words. Hmm. That's so interesting. I think the main thing for people is the negative narrative in your mind as you were speaking. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing holding them back from pursuing what they want to achieve in the future. And I was just curious, what is maybe the process like? What is the day-to-day life of Danielle Boutin? (laughs) <laughs> it's really chaotic and every day is is completely different so uh i love it when i'm in the field mm-hmm. so a good example is we have done a lot of work both relief and recovery in puerto rico mm-hmm. um it is about 
rescuing as many supplies as we possibly can and bringing them to places in need. I love being in the field and it also, it serves as such a visceral, palpable reminder of who we are fighting for and why we do this work when we're in the field. Mm -hmm. um, and it strengthens our conviction around the work and how we use it here. It could be anything from I'm away, I could be meeting in hospitals, I could be giving a talk at universities or high schools throughout New York City. I could be meeting with sorters in the warehouse. It's, it, there's no cadence to this, which I also really love because every day calls on a different set of skills mm -hmm. and there's beauty to that as, as a life, right? So it's like yeah. there are a multitude of stepping stones in one day and they just feed on them. They feed on each other. Wow, that's so cool. What are the primary struggles that you face with running a nonprofit? And also, what's the best piece of advice you've had to counter those obstacles? Oh, these are great questions. <laughs> I um, They are. They're really good questions. So Afia is based on rescuing medical supplies that would have been otherwise discarded. Medical machinery, everything from sutures, gauze, IV starter kits. For lots of reasons in this country, regs require a certain amount of supplies to be discarded after they've been exposed to the medical field, often unopened, untouched. We're, we're talking about millions and millions of pounds of medical supplies. Same is true with equipment when it's being replaced. I think one of the hardest is the element of being able to rescue more and as much as we possibly can. And it is complicated. Healthcare and health systems are very intricate, very sophisticated, and complicated in being able to find an x-ray machine before it is replaced, in being able to make sure that we rescue everything in an ER before an ER is being remodeled, um, to staying in front of the opportunity to rescue supplies is an enormous challenge. And I think one of the elements that we've done really well is to create relationships, really meaningful, beautiful relationships with the people we're working with so that it is not only a professional one where you need to come, these supplies are in our hall and they're waiting for you, but also people who are connected just in their hearts to the work because that's the relationship that we've established. And I think anything that becomes more personal and more emotional works. It works in this environment because people are engaged and committed to the impact of the work. You were mentioning how meaningful relationships are so powerful. And when you go into these fields, you get this sort of like inspiration to always go back and give more. Was there any story that stood out to you that you would love to share maybe? There's so many. I think <laughs> one that really struck me was we went to Lesvos Island where thousands, I mean, tens of thousands to the point of hundreds of thousands of people are on boats from Turkey crossing the 4.1 traverse uh, in the Aegean raging sea to Lesvos Island in Greece. And there, if people survive this passage, they are then in camps and it's now become a real disaster on the island. So when we were there, I sat with a family from Syria who fled. They were being shot at they were 
flying through the forest. They got to Turkey. They got through the cliff, down to the waters. And when I met with this family, with a translator, I said, I, you know, my contribution here is supplies. So what supplies would be helpful if they were available beyond just the hospital having medical supplies on the island for all of you personally? And it was so humbling, this family, that all they had was the clothes they were wearing and the shoes on their feet said, we need nothing. We have escaped the terrors and the warfare of ISIS. We have crossed the sea safely with our family. We don't need anything. We are grateful that we are alive and we are here. And that family will stay with me forever. We couldn't do anything necessarily to help them with the work that we do. But it was an exquisite reminder of the power and the resilience of people who find their way to live and to going on and creating a life. And on the back end of that story was we ended up doing a lot of work at Mitalini Hospital, the one hospital on the island, and sent containers, 40-foot containers of supplies so they could help people like this family if they were to get sick on that island. I think that's so beautiful. Just before you were mentioning how you stay involved in the work and it really feels like you have that original passion that you started out with and that's carried you all through your work, but also just the opportunity to hear such amazing narratives and to be able to elevate those narratives is just fantastic. It really is. And we also have... You know, we, I think we do a lot of beautiful work domestically as well. So not only are we greening our local healthcare partners who we're working with, but we also have an incredibly robust uh, volunteer program for people with intellectual disabilities and people with psychiatric illness. And so they come to the warehouse every morning with treatment programs. And I supervise graduate occupational therapy students. Some come from NYU as well. And they work with these clients. And it is a place where people who are often unfortunately marginalized are welcome to come and to volunteer and to give back and to make a difference. And they make an enormous difference in helping us to sort medical supplies every single day. And there was one, and this is a beautiful story as well. So the narratives just enter the work every day that we are part of an embedded element of people's stories. And I, as an OT, I will forever love that piece of the work. And so there was this man who came to me, Anthony, and he said, Danielle, I really, really want a job. And I said, Anthony, why? tell me about what's important about a job for you. And he said, and he had developmental disabilities and he was very depressed and anxious. And he said, I want to make money so that I can go out on a date. I'm, I'm in my 30s and I've never gone out on a date with a girl before and I want my own money. So we practiced him working in the warehouse, literally stocking shelves, putting supplies where they belong. And he got really good at it. And we wrote him a letter of recommendation and he got a job at Home Depot and wished him well. And we were so excited for him. And then this is the magic, right? So this is the where Afia's gorgeous magic plays. I am walking down the streets of New York City on a rainy Saturday, and I see a man under an awning in a gray suit. And I look at him, and he called me Danny in those days. And I said, Anthony? And he gave me this huge hug and said, Danny. And then I pulled away, and I looked at him and said, oh, you look so handsome. Where are you going in this gorgeous gray suit? 
and he held flowers in his hands and he said, I'm going on a date. I'm going on my first date. And these flowers are for the girl I'm going with because I understand girls like flowers. And I just sat there welling up with tears like dreams can come true through the giving back to others. So I think this gorgeous umbrella of altruism Mm. is far reaching far, far reaching for the people that give back to those they will never know and for those who benefit and they will never know abroad about us. The secret that I love here is that there are people invested in the lives and the well-being of others and we never have to know them, but because they exist, we are going to exist and we're going to fight and work for them. <laughs> That's such I, a beautiful story. Yeah, I have no words. That's so inspiring. <laughs> I guess we were also just wondering for you, what do you define as career happiness? Hmm. I wake up every day so grateful for the work that I have in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's a match for me. I don't feel like it's a a mismatch. Um, I can use the best of my strengths to be the voice and to be a force for people who need someone to speak and to represent them. Every day is far from perfect, but I have this tendency of using humor when things aren't working as planned. So some people freak out. Some people start screaming and I appropriately and inappropriately start to laugh when it becomes so absurd that I can't believe we're in this position because <laughs> there's nothing, I don't know what else to do at that point. Yeah. You know, so it kind of, it's serving me um, that ability to just shake my head and laugh. And it also, it helps me find my way. Mm-hmm. So if I was screaming and yelling or losing it and freaking, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to think clearly and find the way out. Mm -hmm. And so that helps me. So I think career happiness is I really feel like I lead work that makes a difference. And I wake up every day looking forward to going to work. And every day is different. Wow. That's so great. I know I want that. And I'm sure everyone else wants that. Do you Mm -hmm. maybe have some advice for someone who wants that career happiness or that fulfillment that you talk about? What can they do? You can start by finding something small. So notice when you feel good. Literally, what makes you feel good and notice it. For some people, it is quietly sitting and sketching in a pad with music playing. For others, it is um, figuring out how things work. But notice not necessarily what you're doing, but the underbelly of it. So... Why do I enjoy being an occupational therapist? Because I really love people's stories. That's the underbelly. I love stories and I love figuring out how as a clinician to enter a story and help the person make it what they want. Not what I think it should be, but what they want that story to look like. Just like that story I gave you with Anthony. We figured out how we were going to help him build his story So I know that about myself. So what I seek for work needs to match that. I could not be in a career that requires precision and analytics because there isn't a story there for me to enter. So I would begin by become viscerally aware around what feels really good, like bone deep good, and then what could match that for you. Mm-hmm. That's and it can be really simple. It can start with a hobby. It can start with a part-time job. It can start small, but it will influence everything that comes after it. And it also starts with one room, right? So like 
our career is that I see it as this metaphoric house. So many different rooms in it. I have been in multiple rooms in my career house during my lifetime. But it's just figuring out one room at a time. It's not where do I want to be in 20 years. I never in a million years when I was at NYU would have imagined that I would be working in global healthcare and doing what I'm doing today. So it's about imagining the first room and the first thing that fits what makes you feel good and then finding that thing. It's easier that way than reaching out for the career. It's easier to figure out what makes you feel like you're home in yourself and what matches to it. I love that metaphor because it just works so perfectly because you enter into a house and then you find a way to make it into your home mm -hmm. through your career, which that's just so exactly awesome. make it cozy, you make it your own. <laughs> yeah. And it's you. Yeah. And with this type of work, I feel like there's a lot of emotional investment. How do you take care of yourself and, you know, have a lot of self-care to be able to work every day without getting too emotionally involved? Well, I'm lucky that I've been a clinician for so many years. So I've learned how to feel stories. I really deeply feel people's stories. And then I figure out how to act. Hmm. So I'm in a good position where I don't have to bear witness and be a bystander without activity. I would have a very hard time doing that. So what helps me to mitigate and manage some of this is certainly my ability to act on what I hear and what I see. I have to say that years ago, 2010, after the Haiti earthquake, where it was just a complete disaster, and my team, we were in Haiti frequently for years. And in the beginning, it was beyond traumatic. It was body parts and trauma and, and colossal death. And then there was cholera on top of that. And I had a trauma debriefer working with our team every time we got back for a while so that everyone could return whole. Because what we saw in the stories we heard, I mean, one of the women who we spoke with there, who I interviewed and tried to figure out what we were going to do to help her, she was living in a tent. She had her arm and leg sawed off in the street in Port-au-Prince. She was bleeding out uh, She after the earthquake. Someone literally poured a bottle of alcohol into her, and then they sawed off her arm and leg and then she went into surgery hours later and was saved. And to hear her tell this story and to bear witness to it was unlike anything or any story I'd ever heard in my entire life. And after you hear multiple stories like that, and, you, and as a clinician, you need to be strong and present and offer faith for the person sitting in front of you. We definitely as a team needed help to just come back to center. And so when I go away to places like that, I have my own little pattern of self-care. So I know I need to come home and I need to just sit in my kitchen and bake. So I will literally leave with <laughs> bunches of bananas in my kitchen. So they're going to be really ripe when I return home. And I just sit there and for hours I make people banana breads. And it's so concrete in that I'm just making something that is comforting and luscious and delicious. And I am feeding people I love with these. And I just make way too many, but it helps me. <laughs> and then I, I go to spin classes and then I sleep. And if I do that for two days, I'm okay. So I've learned my pattern of how to like re-regulate, but nothing can prepare you 
for some of the devastation that is out there in this world that mm -hmm. in this line of work you bear witness to and you have to be present for the people's stories you have to be i think it's so good that you've found this routine that works for you because i think that can be hard for some people when uh, you're working with something and it's you have so much of yourself in it but you don't know how to take a step back and have those you know two days of baking or whatever else that yeah. would work for them it's interesting because that's, I think that's a really important piece. So when our team started going to Haiti, I'm go this is a good reference point. We went to Haiti and there were lots of teams going and sleeping in the street, medical teams and non-for-profits, literally pitching tents and sleeping in the street. And I said to my team, we don't have to replicate the conditions of those we are going to help to accompany them through their process and their recovery. I want all of you to be well nourished and sleep and have safe water so that you can do an abundance of work for those who need you and figure out what supplies are needed where on the island. And as a result, I think people did better work. So I took that part of it very seriously for our team. It's so inspiring to see a line of work that puts you know, 99% of yourself for other people. We don't see that type of work nowadays where people are more like individualistic and they want to uh, succeed in their career just because the environment's getting more competitive. So to see these types of jobs that are just about helping others, I think puts a light to this world. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think it's so crazy because when you look at the scale of things, you're doing a lot of global work. It's not just domestic. Um, and I feel like it can be so daunting when starting out a project and when you want to create positive change in the world to get to the scale where it's like not just in your own locality, but like everywhere. So how do you manage that? How do you manage the, the wide scale of everything that Afia does? Well, this started as a passion project in my garage. You know, I ha I would get very excited if a doctor gave me a box of urinary catheters and if I had 50 pieces of gauze. And then all of a sudden, very quickly, it grew without a warehouse, without a truck. I, it really grew very, very fast. So it's been a progression. And I'm very lucky that as the work has grown, so has our financial support for the work. And I have an amazing staff. We have a staff of 14 now, and someone on our staff is managing all of our international shipping. Another person is managing the intricacies of the running of the warehouse. Another is running the volunteer program. So we now have an amazing team of people who are responsible for different elements of it. But on the way up, we were all responsible for multiple pieces of this work. And it required working with a lot of volunteers and a lot of people coming in to help us. And I had to figure out how to do that. I, a good example was our first container. I realized that we needed strong people to help us in the warehouse. I mean, it was, there were maybe like one, two of us and uh, you know, a team of volunteers, and I went to a residential facility in Westchester, Children's Village, and it's a residential facility for boys who have been, who have just not been a good fit in foster care or were in and out of juvenile prison, and I figured they could use 
really beautiful work and to feel like they can do something powerful and I need them. And I'd worked in psychiatry for years at the beginning of my career. So I was really comfortable with these boys and they came in and they were remarkable. I mean, like really remarkable. One of them, um, one night, it was really late and we were preparing for a shipment and I turned to him and I said, and he was like 16, 15 years old, you're a really, really good guy. I can't thank you enough for doing this with me and helping me. And he said, I'm not a good guy. I haven't done, I've done some things that are really, really bad. And I said, maybe that's true. But tonight you're a really beautifully hearted young man and you're here and it's cold and you're helping me for hours. And that is worthy of being noticed. And so um, I figured out alternative ways to get help before I could really staff up. And in that model with these boys, I think they benefited because they found themselves like their life had agency and it could make a difference and they could be proud of themselves and proud of the work they were doing. And I needed them desperately. Mm. And on that note, um, globally and domestically, what can people do to help Afia? So if people get on our website, we often list what we are collecting and the items that we need supply collections for. So some givens that are just constantly in need. Uh, we always need used rain boots. So here's the thing about Afia. We ask people abroad for their wish list who we work with. We do most of our work is in the Caribbean and in Africa. And we ask them for their wish list and we do the best we can to match it to the inventory we have. Because I'm an occupational therapist, I think that some of the supplies that we're not going to get from hospitals or from healthcare centers are equally important in that packaging. So a good example of this would be used rain boots. There are midwives, traditional birth attendants all over Africa in rural areas that don't have any shoes or ways to protect their feet during delivery and birth. And because of that, if they're delivering women who are HIV positive, they are at risk. With open sores in their feet, they're just at risk. So we always collect rain boots and those go to midwives abroad. Another example is most of the clinics we visited don't have pens. They don't have enough pens. So at year end, if, for example, NYU students wanted to collect and put in a box somewhere pens that they could use that they no longer need to use would be amazing for us. And then we would get that to health centers abroad. So on our website, we list all the supplies we normally collect. We also, anytime people want to come and volunteer and help us sort at the warehouse, we welcome people all the time. And third, we always need funding to make our work possible and to make it grow. So if people want to fund a shipment, they want to make a donation, they want to have a celebration at the warehouse. Finally, one thing everybody can do is if they are going away on a vacation or a trip, they can bring a luggage for life duffel bag with them. These bags we pack. If someone's going, for example, to Jamaica and they are going to a hotel, they simply call the hotel and say, where's a local clinic that might need some medical supplies that I can bring some supplies down with me. They get the list, they send it to us, we pack it, we mail the box and a duffel bag to repack in and a custom clearance letter to the traveler and they bring it. And that bag can change and save multiple lives because most of the places we visit, the local people on that island or in that location, they don't have the supplies they need.
So there are many ways for people to get involved in our work. Wow, that's so incredible. I just can't stop thinking about the work that you've done and all your progress so far from the beginning. It's just remarkable. Yeah, Yeah. it truly is. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle, for sitting down and sharing your journey and your story with us. It was a pleasure. Welcome to The Debrief, where we discuss our own perspectives on the interview and apply some of our own experiences and background to the conversation. Wow, Danielle's so inspiring. Yeah, I'm just always so inspired. I know uh, whether it's talking to her for five minutes or for 30 minutes or for an hour, um, I just always feel so inspired walking away from any conversation I have with her. Yeah, it's so amazing because Danielle actually spoke in our honors class the other time and both Joanna and I and the rest of the class were so inspired by her and we knew instantly we had to have her on the show. Yeah, that was amazing. It was one of definitely the most impactful guest speakers I've had in any class thus far. I agree. So any takeaways from what Danielle said? It's just so cool because she's so full of, I I don't know what you'd say, like an energy Mm. and she's so fit for her job. And I think that was one of the things she talked about in the interview about how she just found this job that combined all the skills and experiences and personality um, characteristics that uh, fit her. Because when she was thinking about things to do with her life, I'm sure, you know, running a non-for-profit wasn't the first thing that came to mind when she was young. But as she grew older and as she grew with Afia, she realized that what she does at Afia is not only something that excites her and makes her want to go to work every single day, but it's something that fits all the underlying skills that mm-hmm. she has into just this one perfect role for her, I yeah, feel. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a strategy to be able to find all these unused resources and completely transform them into something usable and is profoundly beneficial for somebody else. That's another thing. I, I feel like she gets more done in one day, in 24 hours, than I do in maybe a year of my <laughs> life. I feel like she's doing such amazing things. It's like every day is something that could, you know, save another person's life or yeah. could at least change someone's life. So I feel like to live... A day in the life of Danielle is almost to be like, is literally to save lives every day, to change lives every day, to make lives better every day, which is amazing. Yeah, and I think this totally is emulated from the way she just enters the room. She's so nice and she's so humble. You just instantly feel like you're a friend of hers. And I think it sort of reminds me that it feels good to be able to do a good deed for someone. You know, especially in today's climate, I think we often forget the basic necessity of human kindness because it's so easy to transmit negativity through more accessible modes of communication like social media. Other than that, she just inspires me so much to go out there and use my platform to help others who are in need, especially being a student at NYU, having all of these resources and accessibility to a lot of amazing opportunities to be able to give back to your community, I think is one profound importance that sometimes we all forget because we just want to strive for our own successes. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the stories that struck me and 
strikes me every time I hear it because I heard it once in the class and then Mm -hmm. once in the interview was the story of Anthony and the idea of how giving back can bring your dreams to life and how effective altruism can inspire others but also inspire in yourself something that maybe you couldn't do before Mm. and I think it's so cool because that human kindness it kind of all comes back to you and it's not even that your intentions going into it are like oh I'm gonna give back to the world and the world will give back to me it's more of just things that happen when you embrace this kind of idea of positive change and human kindness and uh, being a light in the world instead of some sort of force of of darkness yeah that makes sense yeah and it's so notable because she's still a ray of sunshine even though nobody believed in afia in the first place and she mentioned like people thought that it wouldn't succeed or she wouldn't be able to accomplish such a huge task but look at her she's like living breathing proof that Anyone, no matter from what background, can accomplish such a large-scale project that's on a global sphere. Definitely. And I think, I'm not sure about you, but how this related to me personally is I think I wanted what she was talking about when she was talking about it. Like, I wanted, I want a job that makes me excited, that makes me want to get up every day and go to it. And as cliche as it is, make it seem like I'm not even working. Mm. And I think a huge way to do that is through the positivity that you surround yourself with. But also, uh, she said finding something small and then noticing what it is exactly that makes you feel good about that thing and then just trying to figure out a career path that fits with those things and I think uh the reason why um Danielle's advice was so it it just resonated so well is that when you think about everything she's doing it's so large scale it's so global it's so it seems unattainable and then Mm -hmm. when you break it down to the core components like you mentioned um, psychologically there has to be something in you that just intrinsically your your um you you gravitate towards one specific aspect um one specific career or even one specific action that you just like doing <laughs> even if you start small somewhere where i'm sure danielle started at the beginning you can achieve great huge wonderful things like her yeah And it also reminds me of our honors class that she spoke in because we had to create a change project. It could be anything that we desired, but it had to be something that could impact a specific community. And at first I thought that this was just going to be an assignment that we had to do. And, you know, I mean, we put our efforts in it to get a good grade. But after a while and after especially listening to her, I feel like the project was more than that. I actually wanted to get into the world and apply my project in real life and bring such happiness and joy that she brings to the people working in Afia and the people that Afia impacts through my project, even though it might be small-scaled. I mentioned in my project that I wanted to do a performing arts social media platform for artists in Indonesia to get a head start in their career. And it seems so large-scale because I'm so far away from home, but even she can impact someone in Africa from here, I think, just goes to show there's truly no limit to what you can succeed in life. I really agree. I think there are so many barriers that we put in our mind, but when we actually get right down to it, I I think also acknowledging that we are privileged to go to a school where there are resources so we can do this, but it just feels that change is so tangible and it's so in reach. Like my project had to do with environmental sustainability and that's a huge thing to tackle, but Mm. when you break it down to its core components, if you make a plan, if you focus yourself, it, kind of like what Danielle did. She had a plan and she focused herself and she didn't let herself get swayed 
when she knew something to be correct, when she knew something um, was within reach, that she could change a life, mm-hmm. then she, you know, saved the life or changed the life. And I think having that motivation is so important, too. Yeah. And also, for the listeners, if you are an NYU student, you should come to the All University Events service event for the Violet 100 NYU Spirit Week. Um, we will be collaborating with Afia Foundation to bring much-needed supplies uh, through NYU Global Sites all around the world. Uh, we're doing something called Luggage for Life, which you can look up more about on the Afia Foundation website. And yeah, you should just come out. It'll be in mid-February. It'll be one of the days of the Violet 100 Spirit Week. So, yeah. I will be there, and I will do it. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. I am so, so excited. Yeah. Fun fact, Danielle was also in that same honors class that we are currently in. She was in that class when she was in college. So, the fact that she was in the same position that we are now, and then to see her succeed and grow in terms of her nonprofit, I think in a matter of time, if you put your soul and passion and dedication to what you want to do, you can definitely, definitely attain it. That's so cool. Yay! Steinhardt pride. If you want to find out more about Danielle or the Afia Foundation, check her out at afiafoundation.org. If you want to find out more about this program or listen to previous episodes, check us out on the WNYU SoundCloud. If you want to get to know us more, follow us on the podcast Instagram at Podcast or at Arnau Ariana and It's Just Joanna. Thank you so much for tuning into So What Do You Do? I'm Joanna Yamakami. And I'm Arnel Ariana. Join us again next week for another episode.